there seems to be a certain bias um, with American culture, Black Americans and Caribbeans that I've experienced, um, where there's a certain air of, I'm, I feel like I'm better than you because I come here and I've never experienced these things or, you know, I work hard and I get things. Um, I don't understand why all these black people that were here before me uh, in America weren't able to do that same thing. And then there's mm -hmm. a certain, you know, history and things that come with it. So it's important to understand that. And I'm, you seem like the type of person who, you know, is um, very well read and, you know, I'm sure that you've already looked into a lot of these things, but I would say, you know, just, look into like that history as well if you haven't already and no, it helps yeah it really does and I, and I appreciate it. i appreciate that because i feel like you know what it is I, I it's not it's not the lack of the um because we're all reading and we're all talking to people it's when you feel like you don't have the experience because it comes from a different place and you've experienced it right yeah so, i think it's just empathy though like with anyone like you know if someone says that they've been hurt by someone i may have not been hurt in that same way but i'll i'll be able to empathize with them and understand them and not act like it doesn't exist i think that's what brings the rage out in people is when right. you know yeah so yeah. just acknowledge the pain and you know i think that's a big part of it have you guys seen the show uh dear white people on netflix yeah yeah based off the movie so I never saw the movie. So um, I've, been, I've been revisiting that show because I watched it a while ago. And I like how it brings up that happened to me when I was younger. And I mean, I was like bawling the other night watching it. <laughs> Something happened in one of the episodes where it just brought back these emotions. And that's how I re-educate myself and re-instate myself into those kind of situations. And it's not that I want to be hurt again or feel the hurt again or, or remember the hurt that I saw in my black friends, but it's that it's important to stay in touch with those feelings. It's important to be very self-aware so you can help better other people around you. Because I feel like I've bettered myself by understanding that, but especially with the current climate, I feel like it was just, it was important that I went back to that show because it was the most real show out there that could help me trigger certain thoughts. Yeah, and it's not even necessarily, it's, it's like, just to use it as an example to what you're saying, it's not even necessarily re-triggering as much as it's also opening your mind because you, I'll use a math example. If I study algebra all day long, every day, and I don't get no outside of algebra, I'll know the ins and outs of algebra, but I won't know anything about like calculus or geometry or anything else, which are all still maths. And so when it's the same thing with racism, there's like, I've, I've had people say things like, oh, I'm trying to educate myself on the black culture. So I'm reading uh, the souls of black folks. People are reading like Booker T. Washington and, and, and Frederick Douglass and thinking that, that encompasses, you know, black culture. And, and that's not, it, it encompasses the culture then, but there's a lot of stuff that's changed and a lot of things that are going on now. There's the things written by black playwrights, black uh, poets, black authors over the centuries there's journal articles documentaries that you can look at um what, what was that one like i am not my hair or something like that 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 talks about the importance of black women's hair because like some people don't understand why it's kind of offensive to just reach up and say oh i like your hair or touch it you know what i mean um it's a lot of little things subtle things that you can just even growing up to hear things like you're attracted to a dark-skinned person or a black person that's that may be a compliment 
doing it, but it's also an insult. It's also telling me that you think all black people are dark skinned people are ugly, and I'm the exception. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. Um, it's things like that that are said that people don't even realize that are a problem that we need to. That, that's where not only researching and looking up things like uh, like like Shy mentioned, but also like Tam- Tamara mentioned, speaking to having that empathy, speaking to your black friends. Uh, speaking to uh, going into these communities, don't just educate your children about these communities through a book or something like that, or by letting them watch a video of George Floyd or something like that. Go into the communities yourself and speak to um, to the people of these communities and find out what's bothering. Find out these questions by asking them. This one woman came to me one time in the show I was in. She said, "I don't understand the, the woman who made the uh, the." the, the I felt that it was. She found the the the, the, the in Africa. She uh, she gave it an African name, but she was a white woman. I don't understand why people started giving her so much about being white and naming the the monkey Harambe. And I told her, you do. You might not know this, but there's been at least a century, more than a century, of history where white people have told black people that we are three fifths a person, where we are we are equal to monkeys or called as monkeys. They used to say N monkey. Yeah, by law, they used to say the the N word monkey. Those are insults. So then you turn around and come to modern day where people forget about that. You name a monkey after a black black name. People are gonna have a problem with that, but she didn't realize that. Things like that would have been avoided if they actually go out into the communities and speak on or and ask questions about it. I don't know, Samara, what do you think? Um, so, yeah, I agree. It runs deep. Um, yeah, but I was, I was going to say, um, Isaac's question earlier about, you know, how do, how do we feel, you know, after speaking out and, um, are we concerned about, um, any like repercussions, um, things that can come back at us? Um, one thing I, the second part of my thought was that, as a black person, um, a lot of us do something um, as code switching and you kind of get used to it where you're different ways in different circles and it's almost um, almost like a survival thing that, I, I mean, I'll admit that I do it. You know, I might be one way on this Zoom call and I might be another way, you know, with my family and, you know, another way with my friends and my, you know, another way at work. Um, and since I've taken this position um, with the city and since everything's been so public with Black Lives Matter and, the, and all the disparities, I feel like this is the first time I'm actually able to kind of be myself in a work environment because now it's trending and it's acceptable. Um, but, you know, it's kind of, when you ask your questions, I'm like, you know, we, I do this every day, you know, it's like, <laughs> I don't have a choice. and. You know, when I do, I, I just switch codes, you know, I, it, it, it's just a part of the, the black experience, at least my experience. The, so. Well, the black American experience. The right? black American experience. Yeah. And then we have, a, we have a specific type of racism. here. Right. 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 And you almost have to, you know, like anytime I go on an interview, for example, I won't wear my hair natural. Because I know that there's a certain preconceived notion with with 
the way my, you know, my hair is, you know, I'll straighten it for an interview and I get into arguments with my daughter, who's a lot more woke than I am, but she's a different generation and a lot of things are more acceptable. You see, this is part of my daughter over here. So, um, <laughs> but um, it's just a part of the experience. And then the second thing I wanted to share, just a quick funny story. Um, I went to Vermont to the Von Trapp Lodge, the, the Sound of Music family. And I remember they had tea time and everything at this lodge, this beautiful lodge. And this woman, this um, older white woman comes up to me and she says, where are your people from? And I was like, wow. I said, my people hail from New York. And I just thought it was just so odd that she thought that I had to be, you know, from some exotic country to be able to be in, in that lodge. So that's it. I just can't help but think that a woman like somebody like that, obviously, it's just it's such exoticization of black people. I'd be like, do you have any black friends? Because you wouldn't be asked. I don't know. It just seems like you wouldn't be asking that question if you, or you would like pick up like my accent or something. You would know like, oh yeah, you're from Guyana. Oh, yeah, me too. I'm with it. Like, because I've had that same that exact same question. And and but he followed it up with uh, this one in university. Um, he said, where are you from? And I'm oh, uh, I'm from Cal Calgary. No, where are you like from? Well, I was born in Montreal. No, but where are you from, from? Oh, well, my dad's from Jamaica, my mom's from Trinidad. Oh, well, you do know that all black people originally came from Africa. I don't have anything to say. Maybe that person at the Von Trapp household, maybe they were, you know, maybe they constantly are getting people from different parts of the world and they like to get to the, Hey, what's your ethnicity? What's where's your roots? And I'm not. Yeah, I'm not. I'm not trying to. I'm not trying to devil's advocate. I'm just trying to say that in the bigger picture of things, I'm confused. Yeah, I, I've always. I get that a lot, though. Where are you from? And you speak English really well all the time. You speak English so well. You know, where are you from? And I'll say. California. No, no, it's the same thing that Daniel said, but where are you from? Until they get where was my dad born? Where was my mom born? Where did they come from? And why do I speak? So that happens a lot. Or, you know, um, I sort of said last time, men like to compliment you. First of all, they'll say something to me in Chinese or Japanese, um, or that they like Asian women. It, it sounds like a compliment, but it's, it, I never take it that way. It's kind of really off-putting to me. Um, I don't know. It's just, it's... You, how long have you lived in California, Tori? Uh, I moved back here. I was in New York for a while, but I grew up in California. Okay, so I lived on the East Coast, too, for about eight years in Maryland. Mm -hmm. And I moved all over because I'm an Army brat. And... Um, when I moved to California, it was my scene again, second time, it was my senior year in high school. And so high school was different than elementary school in California. The first two, the first three questions that I got asked by every single person when I got there was, are you gay or are you straight? What is your ethnicity? And do you smoke pot? Like literally every single person. And I was like, what is this preoccupation with all these three things? Like, okay, get the pot because it's California, a bunch of stoners. 
the gay thing, you know, obviously they're more progressive out here and they're more open about it. Fine. But the ethnicity thing, like, isn't this like a super liberal area? Why are you guys asking me what my ethnicity is? Like you have to place me into whatever society that I'm supposed to go into. So I would say I'm a mutt, you know, I'm Italian, French, English, Polish, but I get along with everybody. I mean, I always had to preface that because it was like, I didn't want to be put into a place, you know, I didn't want to be categorized. And that's exactly what they were doing. And that to me was just a shock. It was a total shocker coming from Maryland where, you know, the line state where there is racism. And I, you know, I've had many experiences there with that. So it was like, what the heck? No one ever on the, ever asked me that on the East Coast. Yeah, that stereotype is basically what I was talking about when I first remember when I was talking about my uh, experience earlier, uh, when we first started the conversation, being a person who is, I, I think, uh, I have to go back and check, but I think I'm, I'm around 75, 76% Native American. But because I'm a dark skinned person, to always be put in a category because of that, to be like, you're not Native American, you're this. And that, that stereotype of you have to be this because this is what you look like is kind of very uh, disheartening, especially for me who's grown. It's weird because I grow up surrounded by my Native American family members, my great, my great grandfather, my great grandfather, my grandfather, my grandmother, going to these family reunions and these powwows where I'm around this Native American culture. And I know about my culture. I know I learned some of the language and then go out in society and be told that you can't, even though you know all this, even though you can speak the language, you're still black. You're not, you're not Native American. There's a place in India where that place has been untouched for over a thousand years, probably even longer than that. They just, they, they, they're protected by the Indian government. Um, and there was, it was in the news recently, a white, uh, I think it was a white or Asian missionary, um, who went to try to convert them to Christianity, even though they have a strict laws that no one can come in there. And they killed them. They shot them. But when they showed a picture of these people, these people were very dark-skinned indigenous people who had, who had been in India for thousands of years. Probably their ancestors probably never seen in Africa or the first step in that area. If you look at indigenous pictures of the Philippines, Philippine, Filipinos and Indonesians, dark skin. For some reason, there's this idea that Native Americans have to be light-skinned with this long, flowing Pocahontas hair. And that's not quite true. If you look at, there's several, several images of Native Americans who are dark or black as like my keychain. Do you know what I mean? Um, and they are beautiful. I have cousins who are smoky black, who look like midnight, but they have long, flowy hair that goes all the way down their back. And it's so beautiful to see them, do you know what I mean? And, and then to be told by society, you're not Native American because you're this color. So I think this goes along with just not assuming, right? Like you can't assume in anything in life. You can't assume in politics. You know, I, I kind of have become apolitical because of my dad's position and or previous position. And I learned with what he did that he was one of the most informed people in the government at one point, And yet he still didn't have the whole picture, right? So same thing with race, like you can't assume that you have the whole picture just because they, somebody looks a certain way. You can't assume that everybody comes from Africa, Isaac, because you don't know that there's an anthropologist working in New Mexico to debunk that idea because he found, he found carbon data sampling from, fire, from domesticated animals and fireplaces, like horse anthropologists have found bones from domesticated horses in New Mexico that they're working on debunking the whole Africa 
uh, Lucy. And his friend was the one that found Lucy. So he's kind of like trying to like compete with his buddy in this anthropological society, right? But this is my point is that you don't know what you don't know. <laughs> and so it's best to just kind of shut up, right? And that's coming from someone who talks a lot, so. Well, um, no, as, as allies in this particular moment in our moment, it's, it's a good idea to listen in general. But as, yeah, I would agree. As human beings in general, it's always good to listen. It's no better way to understand things. I was thinking about just what Mia was saying. When somebody's asking about race again and asking about what's your, you know, basically asking like, what is your status? What they're really asking, I think, is how do I relate to you? And I think that that question is always something that is, where do you, how do I size you up? Um, and it's a question of, again, I think power, because I think to, um, you know, the king asking the peasant, you know, how are you today is different from the peasant asking the king. And if there are two, you know, groups in a society and one has traditionally more power and historically more power saying, where are you from? That's a different, there, there's a lot in that question because that question is backed up by uh, weapons and military and strength. I get that there's a comfortability with who you can relate to, but when it becomes like every day, it becomes a segregation and that right. bothers me. And I think, I think there's hope. I'm like, I was talking to a friend yesterday uh, where I am in Toronto right now. I think 30% when I'm walking along the, you know, social distance walks, I think it's like 30% of the couples that I see are interracial. Wow. And it's like, and it, I, I would like, I was talking about it. It's like, this is like, I'm all for it, but like, this is crazy. Like there's so many interracial love. It's fantastic. Right. Um, so I think there, I think there's hope. Um, but I think there's more work than hope, but I'm a pessimist. I think that at least in America, we're, we're conditioned to kind of, you know, what, what, what team do you play for? What box do I put you in? And, like even myself, I'll admit this, please don't hate me, everybody on the call. Um, but Mia, when I saw you, I'm like, I wonder what she is, you know? And my daughter asked the same question. I'm like, maybe she's Latina, I don't know, I, you know? Um, you know, so you, I could see how that would get on your nerves when people are always trying to like, you know, figure it out. But in my opinion, you do have an ambiguous look and that is, at least in America, like a really good thing because, you know, I, I think in the fashion world, like that's a, a, a plus and people look for that. Um, but I, I think we're, you know, as Americans, unfortunately, we're conditioned and, you know, just to, you know, who do you play for? What team? You know, can I be your friend? Can I not be your friend? Do you like me? You know, we ask ourselves those questions. I wonder if that's um, an American thing or not, because like my parents were hippies, so I they moved me around the country all my life. And so... I, I mean, I suppose that could have affected me in any, any number of ways, but, um, but in general, this, and actually this moment and this conversation is a, a great time to bring this up. I, people that were different from me were always intriguing to me because everybody was different. I was always seeing different. So I was, the curiosity was just, it was just part of me since I can remember. And right now, this, one of the issues that I went through was, um, I've always been supportive of black people in my own way, in my own life. Or, you know, I look up to people who are, look, who are worth looking up to. And so that means sometimes I, I talk about Martin Luther King. Sometimes I talk about James Baldwin. Sometimes I talk about Gore Vidal. I mean, like, it's just people who are worth looking up to. So 
but now I'm thinking I need to be, I, the thing that I balance is not wanting to be inauthentic, wanting to be true, yet still I do kind of have an agenda now, which is like be much more vocally, publicly supportive of my black friends and the black community than I would necessarily do genuinely without this movement in this moment. It's still genuine. It's just now I'm, I feel like it's, it's an obligation. And I don't think that's a bad thing. But I'm, what I'm saying is that like, I never put people into boxes. And, and on the East Coast and specifically in New York, that does happen all the time. So I've just, seen it happen on the East Coast. I just think it's less talked about. Maybe because it was talked about before and maybe California's new. You know, maybe they're playing catch up with certain things with race. There's also a lot less black people in California. Like I remember being really shocked about that. Like where are all the black people, you know? Like what the hell? Well, I mean, that's on? not true. That's not true in Oakland. That's not true in parts of in Los certain Angeles County. areas, but but in general, still in Oakland, a, within a city. She's talking still, about the state of California, no, but right? Yeah, right? yeah, and Oakland still doesn't have nearly as many black people as you would see on the East Coast, in my opinion. Like, and and I remember um, I did like another social experiment with the girlfriend. She was Mexican. Her name was Jessica. We went to all the ghettos in LA. Because I was like, I need to see for myself how hardcore these ghettos are. Because the East Coast ghettos are really ghetto, right? Like, they're really hardcore. <laughs> they're scary. So I go to all these ghettos, and I'm like, this is nothing. Like, this is nothing. Like, what are they talking about? But then I started realizing it was, a more, it was more of a territorial type ghetto. Like, the arguing and the violence that happened, happened was usually over territory, right? Yeah, I mean, I, I remember the first time we decided, like, let's, let's go to L.A., and first time in LA, let's go to Compton because I want to actually see what this is since all my, the music I was raised on said like, yep. you know, Compton. It was just, it was like, like a historic thing almost. Mm -hmm. um, and so we went there and it was like, okay, so that's, that's Compton. What's next? I don't know. Let's go see Michael Jackson's home. And <laughs> it was, it was, uh, I don't know. It was like a, like a real time attraction almost. Yeah. And, but part of us were, part of this was the, the, the getting, getting less insular, like exposing our, us, ourselves to the, to the world that we didn't, weren't raised in. So part of it was going to Compton and seeing what Compton was. And part of it was seeing the walk of fame and, you know, there's all different kinds of things, but certainly going to Compton for the first time and not having been, not growing up in a lot of black neighborhoods, not to say that I didn't, I didn't have any in my history because I did, but part of me was thinking we're going to get shot at. And, you know, because I watched Boys in the Hood and I listened to NWA. It was just like that was what was being presented to me. And, but there was also like the first time I went to, my, to a Public Enemy concert because they're one of my favorite bands of all time. And so like, oh, my God, they're coming to town. They're going to Belly Up in Solana Beach. So I asked one of my black friends, should I be worried? And he was like, what? well, you're black and they're black. So I'm wondering, should I be worried? Is, am I going to be the only white person there? Am I going to get beat up? And talk to me after you go to the concert. Like, like that was, he didn't want to deal with me, you know, understandably. Uh, but that's part of the, the privilege and, and the inexposure. You know, until you're exposed to things, it's kind of easy to have this backwards look about things. Yeah. And the problem with that is that that happens a lot where, 
everyone wants to be part of the black culture. They are take things from the black culture. They want the black dances. They want the black hairstyles. They want the black uh, clothes. Clothes that that you see are typically worn by black people. They want to they want to they want to buy all the music and support all the music and can tell you every lyrics, every rap, and something probably some black people can't even tell you. But then when it comes to actually being around the culture, being a part of culture, then those thoughts that you said came up for you start to start to trigger. One of the Dear White People episodes, the white guy says the N word and. I've used the N-word in some of my writing because I'm recalling instances that have happened. And so I'm quoting people and I had somebody private message me, a white girl, get really mad at me, like really mad at me for using the word. And she asked me to take it down. And I was like, I will not take it down. I wasn't calling anybody that. I was recalling an instance where they were called this and I stood up for them. So no, I'm not taking that down. I think people are so scared of the word that there's like this attachment to it. And I get the sensitivity around not saying it, especially as a white person not being able to say it. But I've had like black friends when, you know, we were smoking a blunt in San Diego years ago and I called him my nig, you know, and like that was okay with them. And like, we were friends and, they, and, and as long as I didn't put the, uh, at the end, they were like, it's cool. <laughs> you know, just don't add the, uh, but, but so for me, it's like, I've pushed that envelope probably past what most white people want. And it made her feel really uncomfortable. And I just told her like, you can't be scared of the word. You have to bring awareness to it. Like you have to let people know that, it's not okay to use it a certain way. And it's, it's never okay as a white person to use it without somebody's permission, you know? And yeah. I mean, I would, I would make sure I would get the permission before I said my neck, you know? So it was like, is this okay? Can I say this? I mean, we're rapping together, you know, like, especially when I was freestyling, like when you're flowing, you're not trying to edit, <laughs> right? You're not editing your rap. You are just spitting it right? You are just going at this person when you're battling. And so you use words like that and it's acceptable, even if you are white. But then like afterwards, if I were to say it not rapping, then it's not okay. Like there's just this weirdness with this word for me personally, <clears throat> where it's like, I understand all sides to it, but I wish it would just go away. Like I wish people would be okay with that word because I feel like you're giving that word power that it doesn't need to have. Not you, but in general, that word has too much power. Does, does that make sense? I understand where you're coming from and I uh, appreciate you saying that. Myself, just knowing the history and the things, uh, you know, the negative connotation, I, I, I still don't really, I don't use the word myself. I used to when I was younger. So I, I, don't, wish, I don't wish people would take away their feelings or their thoughts about that word and that it would just, you know, the importance of the word or the stigma on the word will go away. I don't, I don't think that that is necessarily the answer, uh, but I, I, I definitely can understand where you're, where you're coming from. Uh, I, I just think a lot of people, especially younger people, the younger generation may not know the full history of the word or may not even uh, really take it that serious. So. I think we have a responsibility to teach, uh, to teach the youth like I do with my kids. I teach them about the word, expose them to things, and then when they start knowing that, uh, then they can hopefully make a decision not to, 
not to use the word uh, on their own. There's been something that I, that I wanted to say the whole time, but I've been holding it because it's not specific, like to what we're, it's specific to what we're talking about, but it's not directly like some, something that someone brought up, but I think it's worth mentioning. Uh, I was actually on a business call earlier today uh, and because of George Floyd and Breonna Taylor and all the things that's happening, all of these businesses are starting to kind of like, this is probably negative the way I'm saying it, but jump on board and, and put out these Black Lives Matter statements and say all these things. And I was talking to my wife and I said, I wonder what percent of percentage of businesses actually really feel this way and what percentages are kind of jumping on the bandwagon because if they don't make a statement, it looks negative. So uh, we have these Black, uh, I don't want to say Black Lives Matter, but we have these forums on race. Uh, you know, I'll just go ahead and say that the company that I work for, because it's nothing that they did uh, wrong. So what happened is we, we were actually on this call and this particular person, the very first question that, that went in there in the chat, because they don't allow you to talk, they allow you to type it in. And it was a, it was, it was a lot, so I'll kind of try to summarize it. And they were pretty much saying that there's systemic racism and there's over-policing and uh, Blacks are being victimized and having run-ins with the law. And as a result of this, uh, a lot of them are being apprehended and some of them are being charged with crimes they didn't do. And because they don't have any money for bail or because they don't have the resources, they're, be, they're having to plead guilty and they're getting criminal records and then they can't work at this company. So what are you going to do about that? And I immediately read that to my wife because, you know, we're all quarantined working next to each other. And, and she was saying, we got to think about safety. You know, you got to do kind of like, she was kind of saying like that we, you just can't let criminals come and work at your company. And, and uh, she said more than that. But then I was saying that it's a high percentage of blacks that are getting charged for things that they didn't do and getting uh, and all this stuff. So basically what I'm getting at is that these conversations are so deep and there's so much involved. And when you start to talk about one thing, it brings up another thing and it brings up another experience. And there's so many layers and layers to this where it almost feels like hopeless, like will it ever end? I don't even know. And sometimes we don't even know where to start. I know conversations like this are a good thing, but take for instance, the company that I work for, what if they just took a stand and said, I'm going to start hiring people with a criminal record or, or as busy as they are and as busy, busy as the recruiters are, they're going to do things on a case by case uh, basis and start researching it. They don't have the time to do that. Everybody nowadays has an algorithm that looks for words and looks for things. So it's like, where do you start? Do you say, let the politicians deal with that and we got to change the laws? Do you say, let, let, let my company take a stand as a Fortune 500 company and then the investors will pull their money out or they'll start saying, I'm, I'm not going to deal with your company because their things are unsafety and you guys are dealing with people with a criminal record because whether they pleaded uh, are guilty and they didn't do it, it, it is the record. So it's like, where do you start and, and who, where does the responsibility lie? How do you start to deal with some of these things? And whenever you start talking about these issues, it's going to bring up a whole lot of stuff. So I don't even know where I want to go with that. I just wanted to kind of share that to just say that these are some serious issues that it's very difficult. And uh, that's all. No, I, I agree with you um, wholeheartedly because I get irritated when I, every time I go on social media and see some new company get their Black Lives Matter statement. Um, companies that were, that have been told, like I know a company that has been told that they were racist, they've been slapped in the face over and over again about how their racist practices 
someone called him out on the racism after the George Floyd situation, then all of a sudden they issue a statement about Black Lives Matter and they're going to be more inclusive of Black people. And I feel like it's not even, at that point, it's not even genuine. It's like when people go around after the feminism movement started, uh, people go around and like as soon as a woman uh, gets ready to speak or speak on an issue, someone has to jump in and say, oh, I hear you, I support you, I'm listening to you. Like It's almost like a pre-recorded or like a learned speech that they get, that they develop to let the person know that they're an ally. And I'm like, when you have to do that, are you really an ally? Do you know what I mean? Like, if you really, like, do you have to let me know every time I said, speak on something that you're an ally or are you just going to be an ally? Because if you have to constantly say it, then are you convincing me or are you convincing yourself? And that's why I said it's going to be really interesting to see you know, if this is after the trend is over, because honestly, let's look at Oscar So White. Uh, Oscar So White happened one uh, a few years back. There was a white Oscars where only white people were basically nominated and only white people won the Oscars. And I think there was like one or two white people that were nominated, but everyone basically it was all white people who won the Oscars. There was a big protest about it. The Oscars the following year came out and and so many black people won the Oscars. You thought it, you thought it was like the BET Oscars or stuff like that in that following year. But then, as soon as that year passed, it went right back to the way it was. And now, there's recently I read an article that there's a statement that the Oscars are now adding a diversity clause. If the Oscars, for instance, are giving out an Oscar, they should give it out for talent, and it shouldn't be like, oh, well, so many black people have to get it this year, you know. I mean, if there's no good black actors that year, then, and it's legit, then don't give it to a black actor. But if there's 20, then give it to the 20 black people, you know, like base it on the talent, not the, not the diversity. But you're I talking mean, about subject, a subjective opinion, because who's to say that there aren't any good black actors that year? Well, that's what I mean, though. But, but truly, like, if somebody is, like, so how do they win the Oscars? Like, what is it based on? There's obviously oh. some sort of, like, checklist that they're going through, like, right? And so it should, the color of someone's skin or the ethnicity should have nothing to do with why they win something. We shouldn't yeah. say, oh, well, we have to give 12% to black people this year. I think they also you know? have to diversify the nominating committee. I think that's a, a big problem that's right it. there because, that's you know, it. as human beings, we're going to have certain biases and, you know, what I like is not going to be the same that the other person might like. So I think they need to diversify who's actually nominating instead of putting a clause in there. That's it. And so it's like, it's like uh, you know, data scientists. Who's deciding what data we see? data in a sense is also marketing you know we decide what we want to tell you and when we tell you what type of data we're giving you we're we're already creating a bias in you same thing with the oscars if we if you have octavia spencer who did an amazing performance in the shape of water yeah and, and that year she got nominated for a lot of stuff and didn't get it because they wanted to went on to the white people and it could be that those white actresses were better or it could be that subjectively they just favored the white actresses over the black one. I will say that like, I've seen what she's capable of as I'm sure you have. The Shape, and The Shape of Water was a great film. Like I really, really thought that was a five-star film. And I'm sure that she was happy to be involved in such a great piece of storytelling, but the role that she had was not awesome. Like it was just kind of like, and also here's this character that we need to keep the story going. But she's capable of so much more than that, than that role gave her, you know? Yeah. But she still played that role excellently. 
And so she got nominated. That's why she got nominated for all these four awards, but she didn't win. It's like it's like that joke that they uh, when Ellen DeGeneres uh, when Meryl Streep that year, Meryl Streep just kept getting nominated for stuff and hadn't even come out with a movie. And that's and Isaac kind of what she just said is also an important part. There are certain black actresses, Viola Davis, Angela Bassett, Octavia Spencer, who are somewhere around that same realm as Meryl Streep, but. And Octavia Spencer is uh, definitely on that same level as someone like Meryl Streep or Emma Stone or something like that. Meryl Streep's had a lot more experience than a lot of, and that's also, she's been given the opportunity to be in more films than your average black Yeah, actor. that experience comes from the opportunity. Right, yeah. right. But, Mer- but they, even like Emma Stone or someone like that, um, they, 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 get, they get all these great opportunities and these great uh, roles. Even when they're out, their talent isn't always that great. Meryl Streep obviously is, is like the goddess of acting, but like you know, like other actresses who are nominated and who win awards who are not even that great at acting, and they and they get these major roles. And then you have someone like Octavia Spencer, who's phenomenal, a phenomenal actress. Look at Viola. Viola has won an Oscar almost every year, but a lot of the Oscars she's won has been for Best Supporting Actress. Even though she's a leading actress, she gets she gets these supporting roles. Octavia Spencer in uh, Shape of Water, she should have been a lead based on her talent as comparable to the other talent of the, uh, some of the other actors in the movie. And then that kind of that kind of goes back to like the whole the Hollywood checklist. Like let's make sure that this TV show has the gay the gay character, the LGBT the LGBT representation. We got to have a person of color in there. We gotta have this. It's like a checklist. Like we gotta have that one Asian character. It's it's a checklist almost. They're they're just like filling in boxes as opposed to actually giving roles that are needed. So Jordan Peele, someone that we're all fans of, I would assume. If anybody likes good filmmaking and good com- good comedy, good acting, good directing, but he's uh, fortunately he's he's giving some of these actors the spotlight they deserve. Like Betty Gabriel, un believable actress like i hope to be as good as her in some ways so fortunately we have the jordan peels out there and we have people who are trying to shine the spotlight but it's going to take it's going to take this movement to allow more jordan peels to exist so that more people are allowed to have that spotlight a friend of mine named katrin arafai she's a uh, an absurdist playwright from the bay area i was in one of her plays um last year it was really really well written she was she was making a note online on facebook how in her home country of iran they would leave statues up specifically so that we don't forget the pain uh that you remember that because you don't want it to be forgotten that we went through something pretty horrific however the other point to that is not everybody feels the same amount of pain from that statue or that monument or that street name or whatever. What are your thoughts on, on uh, leaving statues and certain memorabilia up so that they're, they're painful reminders of our past that we don't forget? I think some of the statues, <clears throat> leaving them up to remind people about the pain, it doesn't do that though. It honors those people. To me, that's what it seems like more. It's an honor and and we're, it's not, it's not, it doesn't, it, I don't think for the people that we want to remind maybe of the pain, it doesn't do that. All these statues that are very clearly 
racist uh, statues that kind of invoke racism and invoke the segregation. And then you have the Confederate flag. Fortunately, Mississippi's governor finally agreed to get rid of the Confederate flag. People walk around Mississippi like, oh, but that flag means that I'm an American. No, that means that you're a racist. And, and because that flag during the during the battle of the Union and Confederacy battle was the flag that was essentially the, the symbol for wanting to keep slavery and racism as an institution. I get that you said that in some country they want to remember the pain. But these things cause pain in certain in certain groups of people. These statues are kind of celebrating that racism and that segregation and that oppression. And honestly, if if taking them down, maybe put them in a museum, or maybe or maybe uh, I guess me a suggestion about taking changing the plaque. If we change the narrative of the statues, then maybe yeah. If we say if we have a statue of Hitler and we and we say oh Hitler's this great guy who did this, then that's going to make a lot of people feel bad. But if we change the narrative and say, well, this is what this guy did, the statue is here to remind everyone that this guy is not a good guy, what they have done have been like really bad towards an entire group of people. I just wonder if it's as clean an issue as yes or no, they should be taken down or, or left up. I think there's maybe there's some gray area there, no? I was told this in my early 20s, like everything has a spirit. You know, and someone gave me the example of if you have a T-shirt from like an ex that you have in your drawer and you take that T-shirt out, there's a certain feeling that you get from that T-shirt, whether it's hate, whether it's memories, but it brings up stuff. And it's not, the statues are just, you know, cement. They can be knocked down. They can be taken down. It's just a thing, but it also has a deep spirit and a deep history rooted to it. And... I just feel like, because I was just in um, Virginia recently and got to see these statues firsthand, and I was like, why? Why? You know, it kind of contradicts what, I mean, the South didn't win the war. Like, okay, pull it down. It's over, you know? Like, it contradicts, I'm about to say, who we are as America. There's a lot of contradictions with America, but the thing is that we, you know, the North won the war. So, why weren't those statues removed when that, you know, when that happened? And why is it taking so long um, to like, you know, correct history? And then, you know, other countries when, you know, whoever wins, whatever side wins, I see them pull down the statues in celebration, you know? Most of the statues, if you like do like some research and stuff, well, weren't put up right away, like right after the war or even after like the reconstruction or anything like that most of these statues were put up during the Jim Crow era or even after in the early, early 20th century when, when the Klan uh, had a resurgence because of the Birth of a Nation uh, movie and, and then, you know, the lynchings and everything that, that, that were coming along with that is when, the, is when the statues were put up, like 1915, 1897. So that kind of lets you know what they're there to represent. And I think that they should be down, in my opinion. I just think that it's not a good thing uh, and doesn't represent uh, good things, and especially in the time that they were put up and, and all the things that come along with them. Uh, I think, I think they're, they're not a good thing. It also but, represents a certain defiance. Um, as we were just driving around to yesterday, actually, 2020, in New York, Valley, Valley Stream, Morocco Center, Long Island, and we passed the house and it was full of confederate flags all around the house and i said that is pure defiance like you're in new york you know just 
perhaps it's more of like the virtue signaling thing. It could be. Uh, it's pretty. It's a pretty gray topic right now. So Quaker Oats decided that Aunt Jemima was uh, was a pejorative figure for black people now. After all these years, um, they wanted to be on the right side of history. Is kind of what it looks like, or at least they want to virtue signal that they're on the right side of history. So I don't know what they've replaced Aunt Jemima with. I, I just am aware that they've taken it away. The family has has basically been not protesting, but they've been very vocal about their their disfavor of this because because Aunt Jemima was faced by a lot of different black people, black women, but the initial one was like somebody's like aunt or grandma, and they were like, "You're taking away our history." Like she was so proud of this. And what this did for the black culture where we lived, like, yeah, that's my famous aunt right there. Like, it was a, only a good thing for their family. But the idea is, and Shai, since you're aware of this, tell me if what I'm getting wrong, because I'll probably get some of it wrong. But the idea was, like, we're still just saying black people are your slaves, your, your Uncle Ben, your Aunt Jemima, and they're not, that's, that's as much, they're relegated to these figures. Is that about right, Shai, or am I getting some of that wrong? Yeah, you went a lot deeper than I knew. I knew just the surface that Aunt Jemima has been on Sarah for many years, and the, the company behind it was thinking about pulling it away uh, and rebranding and, cha and changing the, the images. That's all I knew. I didn't know all of the other things uh, that, you know, the different layers that you, that you did. Uh, so uh, that adds a little bit something to it. I'm all for it because everything changes. Nothing stays the same, you know, so uh, things are changing in society. And even if this is something, something I grew up with and it didn't necessarily offend me consciously, now things are changing and people are, are concerned and aware of things like this. So why, why not make a change uh, is the way that I feel. Uh, so, I mean, if the company, if the family of the original Angel Mama is getting like some money or something, uh, you know, that could be something different, but it seems like it's just like nostalgia. It's just something that they that they want to keep going for for that sake. And, and also, it's not her anyway. You said they've changed the picture over the over the over the years anyway. So I'm, I'm all for it. I think it's I think it's a good thing. And so, uh, that's just my, my view. All right. So maybe along the lines of how we we need to get rid of Redskins and, you know, different names that need to kind of like change for the times. You're thinking maybe this is like that. Yeah, I think that's even a Band-Aid thing. Like, uh, you know, there's no Band-Aids. All the Band-Aids are the color of either Caucasians or close to it, you know, and I never thought about that. Me and my wife talk about some of these things and we're like, wow, I, well, at least I never did. Uh, we talk about so many things. I'm not sure if that's one of them, but I said, why not have a, a, a darker Band-Aid? I don't know if that will hurt their sales or because someone that's white wouldn't want to get that. Or if you're out of stock on the white Band-Aid, would you, you know, what, what, what are the repercussions? Because that's what I said earlier. There's so many layers to things. There's so, when you start doing one thing, there's a repercussion. And, oh, now the, her family says this. And, oh, well, what if I only have a black Band-Aid and I'm a white person and I, I'm offended that you only have black band You know, it can get so deep. So it's like, is very uncomfortable, but I think these things need to continue to be uh, discussed and, uh, and some changes do need to be made. Point shoes. They've always been pink, pink tights, pink shoes. Um, so the black da dancers, they have to get foundation and they, it takes them an extra time to color their shoes to their skin color. Um, in the past couple weeks, two of the point shoe companies have come out with point shoes in 
many different shades of brown. So it's, you know, because people started signing petitions. One of them has done it before for a while, but, you know, um, it's a, so those things too that people don't think about because it, it's always the pink tights. And in, if you're in a traditional company, even with brown skin, you gotta put the pink tights and the pink shoes on. But some of the other companies, they wear, they wear brown, you know, we have little girls that I, come in with brown tights and brown shoes and that's good, you know? So their moms are, their moms go and find those out because it's harder to find. But it's, it's, you know, they should have the, they should have those same things. They should have tights and that are in different colors. And so all the companies are starting to come out with that kind of thing. Same thing like band-aids. I never thought about band-aids, but. Bandages coming out with it. They announced it in the beginning of June or middle June. Yeah, you know what's crazy is it's it's 2020. They're like, hey, we'll make some some darker shade band-aids for y'all. But meanwhile, there have been the one color for white people and a gazillion like Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtle band-aids. We can come right. up with those designs. We can right. come up with these designs, but like black people, we'll get to you eventually. We gotta well, take care I, of the fake turtles first, you know. So I gotta say, I'm sad about the Aunt Jemima thing. I, I mean, like, I don't even eat syrup anymore. You, you know, I try to stick to the natural stuff now, but I liked Aunt Jemima. I remember her being on our table as a kid. I remember, like, that endearing smile and, like, just seeing her was, like, a nice start to the day if she was on your table, you know? It was just, like, Aunt Jemima, she felt like your friendly aunt looking after you with her cool apron on and big old smile. And I don't know, like, so I, I feel like, it's sad to see people take such extreme measures. Um, and then for me to hear that the family was saddened by it too, it's like, well, it should be up to them. Like it's their reputation, it's, it's on them, right? Um, so I don't know, I don't know about uh, the whole Aunt Jemima thing kind of, it's like you've taken it too far almost, you know? Like if everyone's happy with her, then, then why push the envelope, you know? go pick a different fight right I, I mean well what i wonder is i i feel that we've become way too image focused as a culture because of corporate america kind of taking over our version of reality like what do you think about stuff there was a whole uh video series of videos on youtube somewhere where they asked people what they think of when they think of general electric what do you think of when you think of this tire company what do you think of when you think of at&t everybody thought of what was marketed to them in their lifetime they didn't think of a bunch of white people sitting in offices making decisions about how to make money. Yeah, I they think did. about the white people because I'm in marketing though. <laughs> right. So, I mean, and again, and, and you and I are somewhat similar in this way where because of the way I was raised, it's the bouncing around thing. You get exposed to so much that until it gets brought up, like tonight, Mia, I really never thought about what ethnicity you were because you're just Mia, you know? And like, and that's that's in general that's kind of how i've been with people i mean obviously like a black person looks different than a white person but i don't i'm not compartmentalizing people in my head that way yeah and i think i ask people like when i do ask people what their ethnicity is it's because there's something truly exotic about them that i can't figure out you know and i tell them that though like you can't just like leave it open-ended you have to say hey you know i can't pinpoint it you've got a really cool look to you 
you know, what, what do you, where do you come, like, what is your ethnicity? Like, what are you made up of, you know, like, <laughs> who built you? But, um, and I feel like also as a mutt, like I can ask that too, you know, and I did my genealogy. I think everybody should do it. Um, it turns out I'm like extremely white, but I, I, um, I think it's important that we learn from our past, you know, and, um, and I think it's important that we, again, are curious. I feel like it always keeps coming back to that for me. And that's how I'm able to bridge the divide is through that curiosity. So it's the same thing with the ethnicity thing. There's plenty of places to take this conversation because you as black people, it's, you can't really separate yourself from race as a white person. And as Nazila pointed out in previous episodes, white people don't have to think of themselves as an ethnic race. She read this from somebody's book. It was like, there's white people and everything else is a deviation or a derivation or a variation of that. But it's, it's white first. And I, how do I say that's wrong? That's probably right. For the most part, that's probably how white people think. I, I don't have to think of myself as a skin color. Um, you know, I don't think of you guys as a skin color. We're, we're just people talking. But like, I have to think of you as a skin color if I want to be on the same page with you in today's world. Because we're fighting the same fight, or I'm helping your fight. I think it needs to be everyone's fight, you know? If we're trying to be one united states of America, you know, this is something that has plagued this country for centuries and it affects like what Mia was saying, you know, how she kind of in certain in her middle school or high school, you know, she got, she experienced racism and it's like hurt people hurt people. And it's just a continuous cycle of us hurting each other. And it's so ridiculous. And I was going to say earlier is that I remember reading this study and they were doing, um, studying different cultures. And they were saying that the cultures that have the most in common are black and white Americans out of every culture in the world. We have the most similar traditions, most similarities. Um, our cultures are so similar, but yet we are the groups that fight each other so much. And I, I, you know, that just blew my mind. Like we're so similar, but we use something as insignificant as color to define us and you know like it's ridiculous it's ridiculous like i wish it was something else that we if we were gonna like discriminate that something more like i, I don't know it's not the hunger games but there was another movie that came out where depending on your talent that's the group that you were in so if you were good at um, working on a farm you were in that class and if you were good at business you were in that class and there was discrimination based on your talents um, that made more sense to me, <laughs> even though it's stupid, than color, you know? Yeah. Well, I, I mean, I don't know which, what you're referencing, but I, I would say that, like, what we do have in common as Americans is that we are equally oppressed in the sense that we're not in the 1%, because we are all getting pushed down economically, which affects everything. The more money goes into the military and into militarized police, the less money goes into our communities and our education and things that really serve us as human beings. And also, just for you, what's in your hand, the speech, um, Adam Clayton Powell, you can listen to that speech. Just based on what you were saying earlier, 
um, how you were saying, you know, you don't know if you're doing enough and, you know, just he talks about take what's in your hand and start there. A young slave boy stood one day before the greatest ruler of his day. And God said to Moses, what's in your hand? And Moses said, Lord, only I've got a stick, that's all. He said, well, let me use what's in your hand. And God used that slave boy with a stick in his hand to divide the Red Seas, march through a wilderness, bring water out of rocks, manna from heaven, and bring his people to freedom land. What's in your hand? What's in your hand? George Washington Carver, who was so frail that he was traded for a broken down horse as a slave boy. And George Washington Carver, sitting in the science laboratory at Tuskegee, told me, he said, Dr. Powell, he said, I just go out on the fields each morning at 5 o'clock, and I let God guide me. And I bring back these little things and work them over my laboratory, and that man did more to revolutionize the agricultural science of peanuts and of cotton and sweet potato than any other human being in the field of agricultural science. What's in your hand? Just let God use you, that's all. What's in your hand? I've got a string in my hand, that's all, and I'm flying a kite. And way up in the heavens, lightning strikes it. And I, Benjamin Franklin, discover for the first time the possibilities of electricity with a string in my hand. What's in your hand? Little hunchback sitting in a Roman jail. I haven't got anything in my hand but an old quill pen, but... God says, write what I tell you to write. Paul wrote, I have run my race with patience. I've finished my course. I've kept the faith. Henceforth, has laid up the What's in your hand, little boy? All I've got is a slingshot. And the enemies of my people are great and big and more numerous than we are. Well, little David, go down to the brook and pick out a few stones and come on back and close your eyes if you want to and pull back that slingshot and let it go. David killed the biggest enemy, the leader of the giants against his people and his people became free, just letting God guide a stone in his hand. And a few years passed and David is a king and God says, what's in your hand? He said, I've got a harp in my hand. He said, well, David, play on your harp. And he played, the Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. Take me to lie down in green pastures. Leave me beside still waters. Yea, though I walk to the valley and the shadow of death, I'll bear no evil. What's in your hand? What's in your hand? Man hanging on a cross. I've got two nails in my hand. Father, I stretch my hands to thee. No other help I know. If thou withdrawest thyself from me, whither shall I go? And that man, with two nails in his hand, split history in half, B.C. and A.D. And what's in your hand tonight, people of Cambridge? You've got God in your hand, and he'll let you win, because he's on your side and one with God, always in the majority. So walk with him, and talk with him, and work with him, and stick together, and fight together, and with God's hand in your hand, the victory will be accomplished here sooner than you dreamed, sooner than you hoped, sooner than you prayed for, sooner than you imagined. Good night and God bless you.